you have your Bible this morning, how about if you open it up to Acts chapter 12? I'm going to pray with you in just a minute. Um, while you're turning there, we're going to use an anchor verse this morning, and anchor verse comes out of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter 3.12 has a, a very specific meaning to it because of who we're studying this morning, um, what happened with Peter, what went on in his life. And 1 Peter 3.12 talks about how God's eyes are over you, how He sees you, how His ears are open to you, and how He responds to those who are wicked in His sight versus those who are righteous in His sight. So you'll watch that verse pop up this morning occasionally. But before we step into the text and you'll see that verse pop up, how about if you pray with me right now? Would you join me in that? Father, we come before You and recognize that You are mighty, You are righteous, You are just. There's nothing about You that ever changes. You're worthy of everything that we just declared about You. Our words fall short. We gather together this morning because we want to encounter You and we want to know You better. So we would ask that You would speak clearly to us, that we would encounter You in a fresh and new way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me read to you 1 Peter 3.12. It says this, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You're going to hear that verse pop up again and again throughout the midst of Acts chapter 12. And God has some things to say this morning. I didn't know about the events of this last week, what was going to unfold in your life or in my life or in our nation or around the world. I prepared this thing, this text, couple months ago. God knew what we needed to hear for this morning. God knew what was important to us where we're at right now. Our world is a little bit different today than it was a week ago at this time. And things are changing on a weekly basis. And God has things to say to speak into that so that we understand who He is and who we are in relation to Him. So I didn't know about the things in Tunisia. I didn't know about the things in France. I didn't know about the attacks that ISIS was going to bring. But God did. And God has things to say about who's in control, who's in power. We need to be reminded, church, that God said the word of the Lord endures forever. Okay? Let's look at that up on the screen so you see it the way He said it. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the word of our God stands forever. You know what that means? He never changes. Scripture says he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Our God never changes. And if our God changes, we have a far bigger issue than the problems going on in our world today. Because that could mean he could change his mind about salvation. God never changes. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You know what that means? It means God always wins. He always wins, church. He never loses. That means it's a bad idea to go to battle against God because he's undefeated. Have you ever met anyone who's completely undefeated? God is undefeated. 
So I don't know what's going on in your world today, how shaken you might be feeling at this moment. We just sang, we will not be shaken. The only reason that we can say that is because we serve a God who is not shaken. So if he cannot be shaken, we can say we will not be shaken. So you might be feeling like what's going on in your world is unique. It is not unique to our generation. There's been a battle raging for eons since the dawn of time. The first time fallen angels decided to rebel and take on the holy angels and rebel against God, that battle's been going on at a cosmic level since long before you and I walked planet Earth. And at times, the demons of hell decide not to restrict their battle to the cosmic world, but they bring it to planet Earth. And we live in the midst of it, and we watch it fleshed out. But the battle is not in doubt of who's going to win. God always wins. So although the final outcome is never in doubt, the warfare is no less real, right? It's completely real. You and I live in the midst of the warfare. So we need to understand who we are in relation to him because what's at stake are the eternal souls of humanity. That's what Acts chapter 12 is all about. We get to watch a king who decided to rebel against God and God shows us what happens when you go to war against him. Let's go to Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find them in the racks there around you or you can watch on the screen. It says this, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. So verse 1, what it says about that time, think back to where we were at last week in chapter 11. If you were here, we were talking about the famine that swept across the Middle East. Well, this is about that time that they're referring to, the famine that was mentioned in chapter 11. Now up to this point, the apostles have been physically unharmed. They haven't been touched, but Herod Agrippa had not been in power previously. Now Herod Agrippa I comes into power, and he assumes the throne, and everything changes. In the New Testament, there is one dynasty that rises to the level of being the oppressors of God's people, and that dynasty is known as the Herods. You may have thought that was a name of an individual, but Herod is a title. It's a title of a dynasty. So there's Herod the Great, there's Herod Antipas, there's Herod Agrippa I, and Herod Agrippa II. We're looking at Herod Agrippa I here, and he assumes the throne. Now, his great-grandfather was Herod the Great. He was the one who was bloodthirsty and severely against God. Now, he's the one you might think of when you think of the Christmas story. All the little boys that were killed two years of age and under because Herod was threatened on his throne. So he decided to exterminate the children. That bloodthirsty ruler is gone. Herod Agrippa I comes into power, but here's how he comes into power. Herod the Great killed his own son. Herod Agrippa is the grandson, and he set off to Rome. And he's raised among Roman aristocracy. He's raised among the future Caesars of Rome. They go to school together. Herod the Great dies. Herod Antipas comes into power. Herod Agrippa is still living in Rome as a young man, and he's got a reputation. He is a player. He knows the nightlife of Rome, and he takes full advantage of it. And he's also a serious gambler. And he gambles himself into such debt that he has to run from Rome and to escape his creditors. Well, his uncle, Herod Antipas, who's on the throne back in Israel, decides, I'm going to send him some monthly checks, and he begins bailing him out, giving him some family money. 
but then Herod Antipas dies. Now, if your eyes haven't glazed over at this point, hear this part. Herod Agrippa is in line to ascend to the throne. Caesar Caligula is in power. In 41 AD, he dies. But Caesar Claudius assumes rule. And he and Herod Agrippa are best friends from childhood, raised together in Rome. So Caesar decides to give to Herod Agrippa rule over all of Judea, over all of Israel, over all of Syria. He makes him a mighty king to the level of Herod the Great, his grandfather in the past. There's nothing that is withheld from him. So this young man who is incredibly selfish, who's been raised with Roman aristocracy, is now in power over all of the Jewish people. There's a problem. The Jews hate the Herods. They have no use for them whatsoever. And the Herods know this. And so they go to great lengths to try and win their favor. They want them to have loyalty. So Herod Agrippa comes up with a plan. He decides, I'm going to go after the enemy of my subjects. He decides to go after the church. He begins persecuting the church, and he really ramps it up when Gentiles enter into the church, and the Jews love it because they're thinking not only will we get rid of the church, these people who are teaching heresy, we're going to get rid of the Gentiles at the same time. So Herod's doing something that's very popular with them. So we find in verse 1, it's open season on Christians. And we're told in verse 1, he laid some hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, the Greek is really vivid. It says, he laid violent hands upon them. So Herod arrests James, first apostle, who's murdered for the name of Christ. It has a special meaning when you go back to Matthew chapter 20, and you find young James and young John coming up to Jesus. And they say, hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you give us a throne, one on your right and one on your left? Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking for. Their response is, well, we would like that. Would you give it to us? And he said, are you able to bear the cup that I'm about to drink? Yeah, we're able. They have no idea what they just said. And Jesus says, you will bear the cup. James, who said that, is the first one you find in this passage to be killed. Verse 2, it says he's put to death with a sword. That Herod executed him according to the Roman fashion says a lot. See, Jews would stone an individual. He's taken his head Why did they do that? To execute someone by beheading them meant to cut off their voice, to stop them from speaking because it was making a statement. We believe what James is part of is leading people astray. So let's make an example of him. We'll remove his head. Go forward with me because if the Jews are excited that James is killed, how elated would they be if Peter's eliminated? Now hear this as you go into verse 3. God, who rules and reigns, whose word never changes... That God permits Herod to arrest Peter and put him in prison for a reason, to reveal his purposes, to reveal his power, because he always triumphs, right, church? Okay, let's go to verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, it was during the day of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So James is dead, Peter's in prison, and he's waiting for sunrise, and he knows he's going to be terminated because that's the orders. Hear this. Not even a king can change God's purposes. Not even a ruler of planet earth of any nation can derail God's plans. And this king finds himself 
fighting against God and against God's plans, and he's going to suffer the consequences. The foolishness of fighting against God is self-evident. Yet generation after generation after generation continues to try to do it. Our generation is no different. We continue to watch nations fight against God and his purposes. In biblical times, just as now, there are those who attempt to battle God. Isaiah gives us perspective when we think of that. Let's look at his writing from chapter 40. He says, here's a reality check for you. Those who rebel are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Herod has access to the scriptures. What Isaiah wrote, he wrote 400 years before Jesus lived. Yet he sees that he pleased the Jews by killing James. And so he decides to take Peter. He decides, I'm going to go all in. This execution of Peter could score some major points. Now we're told in verse 4 it's Passover. So he chooses Passover because it's vacation time. Jerusalem is packed with people who are on vacation. And they've come into town to celebrate Passover. So he decides, I'm going to get maximum coverage on the nightly news. I'm going to put Peter on display. He wants a really showy public trial. So before the crowds leave Jerusalem, Peter's sitting in prison with four squads of soldiers. That means there's 16 guards on him. Four squads of soldiers with four Roman soldiers each on three-hour shifts, two in the jail cell chained to him, two standing outside his cell guarding the gate. Is Peter in a maximum security prison? Maximum security prisoner in a maximum security prison because they probably remember what's happened the last two times they put him in jail. Peter seems how somehow to keep escaping. There's a phrase that I love in the Bible. And the phrase is this, just two words, but God. Someday I'm going to do a teaching on but God because it's all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we see that coming out in the next verse when we get to verse 5. But hear this, here's the first part of 1 Peter 3.12. I gave it to you in the very beginning. Here's the first anchor verse. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Do you notice who the author is? Peter. Same Peter, same Peter that's sitting in jail, okay? So that kind of gives you a clue that he actually gets out of jail, all right, because he writes this as an old man. So he knows what Herod's doing. God knows what Herod's doing. He knows that he's a schemer. He knows that he's a murderer. So go with me to verse five. Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Do you notice that they're not calling Rome? They're not dialing up Washington saying, hey, you got our guy, set him free, There's no picketing taking place. There's no protesting. They know that when God intervenes, everything changes. Why? Because God hears us, church. His eyes are over the righteous, 1 Peter 3.12. Here's the next part. Look, Look with me on the screen. And his ears are open unto their prayers. That means God hears you this morning. God says in his word that you are righteous in his sight if you belong to Jesus Christ. So his eyes are tuned into you and his ears are hearing you when you pray. God's eyes are on you and his ears hear you. And that's what we see, this promise from Peter himself writing this. So prayer, according to verse 5, is made fervently. Why? Because God intervenes when we pray. This is the turning point in the story. Absolutely, everything changes on that part. So while Peter sits in prison, the church unleashes the most powerful weapon that we have. Our God reigns and rules, and his word never changes. 
So he intervenes. They know God alone has the power to rescue. There's a word that's put in your notes this morning if you picked up one of the bulletins when you came in. And you're not going to see it on the screen, but this Greek word is the word ektenos. A very close relative to it is the word ektenes. It's a medical term that Dr. Luke was very familiar with. Ectenase means to use a muscle to the full extent of its ability, not to the point of hyperextension, but to the maximum possible usage for it. Ectenos is the word that's used here, meaning something that's being used to the maximum capacity. It's used of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified, when we see him praying to the Father about the things that are happening on planet Earth. And we're told that he sweat great drops of blood because he's praying out so intensely. It's the exact same word that's used here of these people. They're pouring maximum effort into their prayer life. So it's the night before Agrippa's big show trial. But God's going to put on a show of his own. Go forward with me into verse 6. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Now, usually, really important prisoners are chained to one guard. Rarely is a prisoner given two guards, one on the right and one on the left, that they're physically chained to. So no one has any doubt whatsoever of what Agrippa has in mind. So the guard is doubled. See, the magnitude of this crisis cannot be overstated. The church completely understands that. Now, hear this. Herod, at this point, who is the ruler of a nation thinks that he has the upper hand, but God rules, right, church? God reigns. Now, if you're chained to the soldiers of Rome and you're facing execution the next morning, are you going to be sleeping? I'm thinking I'm not. I'm not sure how he's doing this. He's in the misery of a prison. He's sitting on a hard cell floor. He's chained to Rome And yet we find Peter sleeping. Go forward with me now to verse 7. It says, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Now, I've had sleepy teenagers in my house that are hard to wake up before. But this is different than that. How deep is Peter's sleep? The angel of God who stands in his presence shines in the cell, and Peter's not awake. Now, think in terms of the shepherds at Bethlehem who were fearful for their life because of the brilliance of the angels who show up on the mountainside. The word that's used here is the word lampos, and it literally means to shine brilliantly. Greek language is so much more descriptive of it, but Peter's still asleep. Go to part B of verse 7, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly, and his chains fell off his hand. I don't know if he kicked him in the ribs or he used his sword to smack him upside the head, but he did something to wake him up. The angel has to hit him to get him up. Now, what gives you that kind of confidence to sleep that deeply in those circumstances? When you're on trial for your life, your decision's already been made. You're going to be executed. He's going to take your head off. But first, he's going to make a display of you. How can you sleep in those situations? Well, here's a couple thoughts. Verse 12 says there's a lot of people praying for him, a lot of people who are praying Perhaps that God would even give him peace in those circumstances, but that's not enough alone. I think there's something else going on here. Now, Peter's been a prisoner twice before, and God has a perfect track record. He's delivered Peter each time, but I think that's not it also. I think there's a third thing going on. Peter knows that Jesus made a promise to him, and the promise that he made to him 
was that Peter would live to be an old man. He said, Peter, one day you're going to be an old man and they're going to lead you to where you do not want to go. And they're going to stretch out your hands and you will die for my name. Jesus was describing to him that he was going to be crucified just like Jesus. And when they crucified Peter, he asked that he be crucified upside down so that he would be less than who Jesus was. He didn't want to be crucified in the exact same way. So he knows that he's going to live to be an old man. Why? Because he knows who holds the future. He has peace because Jesus made a promise to him. That's why we find a verse like this, cast all your anxiety upon him, 1 Peter 5, 7. Why? Because he cares for you. Let's put the one up on the screen, would you, Matt? 1 Peter 5, 7. Do you notice who the author is of that church? Peter. Same Peter, right? Same Peter who's in prison is saying, put all your anxiety on him. Put all your worries on him. When your world feels like it's crumbling and shaking, put it on him because he knows your future. He controls everything. Move forward into verse 8. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So he's still really groggy. He's still sleepy. Peter has no idea what's happening here. The angel has to give him every single step. Hey, put on your shoes. Put on your clothes. Put on your coat. Follow me out the door. Come on, Peter. Wake up. This is like a parent with a child who's being awakened from a deep sleep. you got to get dressed. See, this is obviously not Peter's escape plan, right? He didn't come up with this. Obviously, this is not what he devised. So he orders Peter to follow, but he's too sleepy to grasp the reality of this. So it's like, wow, this is a cool dream. Isn't aware of what's going on. Move forward. Let's go to verse 10. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel departed from him. So they're passing the first guard and the gate. Passing the second guard at the inner gate. Passing up to this big iron barricade that leads into the heart of the city. Most historians looking at this story say that's the the Tower of Antonius. That has to be. That's clearly the description of where the barracks of Rome was located. The same place where they held Jesus captive. The Tower of Antonius is significant if that is the case. Because not only is this the Roman barracks, this is where the Praetorian Guard hangs out. So Peter, a maximum security prisoner in a maximum security prison, finds himself by God's hand not just delivered past one gate, not past a second gate, but to an iron wall which opens by itself. How is that possible? Iron is made from mineral, is it not, church? Iron is a mineral. Who spoke mineral into existence? God creator and sustainer of all things. Iron formed from mineral opens and responds to the activity of your God. And we see it clearly in Scripture. It responds of its own. Now, the Greek word that's used here, especially if you look in the King James Version of the Bible, is the word autonomous. It says of its own accord. Accord is the word autonomous. It means of its own free will. Are you telling me, Mark, that metal has free will? No, I'm telling you that mineral and elements respond to the presence of the Lord God Because Jesus said, if you do not praise me, the rocks will cry out. You're seeing it, church. 
You're seeing it in Scripture, mineral elements responding to the King of Kings. Why? Because there's no prison. There's no chains. There's no schemes of man that can hold those whom God sets free. Because if you're free, you're free indeed. Now, typically, when you look at a passage like this, you say, I don't get it. Why does James die and Peter gets set free? Well, it depends on your definition of set free, okay? It depends on your definition of rescue. We see James allowed to step into eternity, to spend forever with the living God. Both men are dedicated to Jesus. Both lead the church, yet God allows James to leave this planet. But he preserves Peter's life. He keeps Herod from harassing him. So there's only one answer when you come to a story like this and you say, why did that one die and not this one? Why did that one get to live and that one had to die? I don't get it. There's only one answer, and that is we serve a sovereign God. And that's where faith comes into play, church. You have to have faith that God knows what he's doing, even if we don't understand it. So hear me on this. It is not score one for Herod Agrippa, score one for God. It's God two, Herod zero. Herod is not in control. God is doing exactly what he wants to do. So it's the very thing that Peter prays for in Acts chapter 4. You studied that with me. Peter calls out after he's been in prison the first time. He said, why do the people devise vain things? Why does the nations rage against God? You are in power. You are in control. See, it's ultimately about whose throne reigns and rules. And if you've never heard this before, maybe this is your first time at New Hope, hear this. Heaven's throne is completely in control. 2015, just like in the first century, Heaven's throne is completely in control, even when it feels like it's not. Not the thrones of earth. God's throne rules. Let's move forward. Verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Well, what were they expecting? A show. They're expecting a spectacle. They wanted a public execution. So God's delivered Peter, and he finds himself standing in the street. Standing in the street is not such a good thing when you're the most notorious criminal in all of Jerusalem, right? Peter knows this. Hey, I'm a wanted man. My face is highly recognizable. I'm an escaped prisoner. So he's got to use some common sense. Take the next step. Verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered. Together and were praying. Verse 13, when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. This is one of the funniest portions of the entire Bible. You're going to love this if you've never heard this before. Now, apparently, Mark's mom is really wealthy. She's got this great house. It's big enough to hold a large, large group. She's also got servants who work for her. And the servant, one of them, Rhoda, comes to the door. Peter has knocked. She naturally asks, Who's there? It's late at night. Now, Rhoda is the keeper of the gate, which was a common job that was assigned to female servants. So no matter the hour of the night, she has to respond. Peter stands visible, remember. Now, this is a big house. It's got an outer courtyard. So he's literally out in the street trying to get through the first gate to get into the courtyard, let alone to get into the house. She hears his voice. Now, this servant girl works for her mistress, but apparently she's also a part of the church because she immediately recognizes Peter's voice. I mean, she's heard him before. 
She knows who this is, so watch what happens next, verse 14. But when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. See, she can't handle the dynamic reality of what she's just heard, completely ignoring the fact that Peter would really like to get off the street. He doesn't want to be out there anymore. He's exposed. So Rhoda interrupts prayer meeting. Hey, Peter's here. He's outside the gate. Now the church, in all of its encouraging form, comes around her and says to her, verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. That's that's a biblical way of saying you're crazy. You have no grasp of reality, girl. I'll finish the verse out. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. So they're mustering up all their faith. You're crazy. Now it's true. A knock at the door could have easily meant that the soldiers of Rome are there to arrest more believers. They're persecuting the church, right? Could have easily been the case, but that's not what they're leaning into. They say in verse 15, it's his angel. Well, there was a fallacy in the Old Testament among some people who believed that when a person died that their guardian angel could assume their form. And so they're, they're using this old way of thinking, which is completely erroneous, because they don't know what else to say. They're, they're flabbergasted by what she's stating. Obviously, what they believe is that he's dead. Now, of course, her response could have been, why would a spirit bother knocking at the door? She doesn't need to say that. They're convinced that this is not Peter. Now, it's remarkable, is it not? that it's easier to find that Peter is dead than to believe that their prayers have been answered. Even though they've been praying intensely, ectonos, to the point of stretching themselves out fervently, yet they believe that God would not do this. It's too great to ask for. I want you to get this down because it really relates to our day. It's clear when the answer comes. God says, I'm here. I've done this for you. Don't you notice? Pay attention. And they refuse to accept it. No, it's too good. That's not possible. See, even in the early church in the first century, there was weak faith. There was doubt. But God honors even weak faith. Jesus said grain of a mustard seed, right? Even weak faith. They're still bringing it to the Father. God, you've got to intervene. And when he does, they're just shocked that he does. Now, meanwhile, while the real Peter's waiting outside the gate, he's in a really awkward position. He's trying to knock at the door to get in. Go with me to verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. And it appears that they decide as a large group to go open the door together, right? Whatever's on the other side, we don't know what it is. We're going to look through the gate together. And when the gate opens, they're shocked. Now, the amazement apparently gives way to excited conversation because everybody begins to talk at once. So Peter's got to go, shh, going to wake the dead here. It's two in the morning. Don't do this. See, the noise from the group threatens to wake the neighbors. Go with me to verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now, right now, you might be thinking, oh, Peter doesn't know James has been killed. It's not the same James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. Mary and Joseph were married husband and wife, came together and had other children. Jesus was the firstborn of Mary, a virgin. 
But Joseph and Mary conceived children together. This is the half-brother, James, who became the pastor of the church leading Jerusalem. That James and the apostles, they don't know about what's happened to Peter yet. That's why he says you've got to let them know. So we find Peter giving them instructions, and at this point, Peter walks off the pages of the book of Acts. You see him one more time for just one sentence in chapter 15 when there's a debate about who can eat what and who can hang out with who. According to Corinthians, Peter makes his way north with his wife, and they begin launching and helping and serving in churches, speaking to people around northern Israel and parts of Syria. According to Corinthians, it looks like he visits the the city of Corinth. Verse 17 says he left and went to another place because come sunrise, he knows Herod Agrippa I is going to be opening up a manhunt, and he doesn't want to put his brothers and sisters in jeopardy. Go forward with me. The story finishes out in verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. No wonder there's a great commotion. How can a chained prisoner with four squadrons of soldiers guarding him escape? They're absolutely frantic, turning the prison upside down. It's known all too well to the soldiers of Rome what happens to soldiers who lose their prisoner. The Roman law required that if you lost the prisoner, whatever happened to the prisoner is what your sentence became, and he was scheduled for execution. You obviously see that in the passage. Peter was scheduled for it. They couldn't do it to him, so they bring it out on the soldiers. See, Herod Agrippa I is a distrustful, ruthless man, and the guards can give no reasonable explanation. His plan was to make a spectacle of Peter, and it blew up in his face. Apparently, he needs a vacation, so he goes to Caesarea. He decides, I'm going to go to a vacation town and hang out. What he's failed to learn is you cannot war with God. And the failure is about to cost him a whole lot more than his weak, fake prestige with the Jewish people back home. It's going to cost him his life. Move forward with me. It says in verse 20, Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. We've looked at 1 Peter 3.12 so far. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are tuned into him who lift up prayer. But there's a third part to it I want you to see. Can you put that up on the screen for us, Matt? That's the last part. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now pay attention again to the author who wrote this, Peter. Peter says the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His eyes are tuned into you. His ears are open to you. But his face is against those who say his word does not stand forever, that his word changes, that it moves and shifts with culture. God's word does not change, church. He never changes. And his face is against those who do evil. So we understand from verse 20, Herod the king is very angry with some people of Tyre and Sidon. Now it's been several months since Peter's escape. 
And Agrippa, we find, is furious with some people from another city, Tyre and Sidon. Now, evidently, there's some kind of an economic war going on. Here's the background. Tyre and Sidon is on a Mediterranean seaside. They're coastal towns. Those coastal towns are totally dependent upon the inner towns for their food. So California needs Kansas and Oklahoma to be the breadbasket of the nation because they need the grain, right? Do you got this case with Tyre and Sidon? They're on the seaside. They can't grow grain. They need these inner areas. That's where Herod Agrippa rules. That's his territory. And his economic blockade is crippling them. And they realize the danger of having Herod angry with them. So they negotiate with the king's chamberlain. The negotiation apparently works, and Herod comes to terms. But in order to demonstrate his political victory, his skill, in order to show the people of the world that he reigns and rules, he says, everybody turn on your television sets at one specific time, two days from now, because I'm going to announce who I am and what I have done. I'm going to put myself on display. I am a spectacle for the world to pay attention to because I rule and I reign over this region. That's what you see coming out in these next verses. Herod has agreed to the terms, and he is an arrogant king who is going to display his authority and put himself on display for the delegates. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not a man. You ever heard the phrase kissing up? Okay. I'm thinking this might be the origins of it. I'm not sure. I don't know where it comes from, but we've got some people who are playing up to the king. And we don't know what he said. We don't even know why he specifically said it. But here's what we do know. His desire is to impress the people. He wants the applause of the crowd. And they feed his monstrous ego. They play up to him completely. Apparently, his ploy works, and he loves every minute of it. Apparently, according to historians, the event that's mentioned here is the feast to honor Caesar Claudius, his best friend. We don't even know if Claudius is present. He may have shown up. I don't know. But what we do know, according to history, is that Herod Agrippa had custom robes made for himself woven a very fine silver thread and woven together with blue thread so that it would show his royal dominance in especially the way that he wanted it to. Josephus is a historian who lived in the first century who gives us an eyewitness account of what the people saw when they saw Herod sit on the rostrum. Let, let me show you because his quote you'll see up on the screen. Agrippa came to the city of Caesarea where he celebrated spectacles in honor of Caesar. On the second day of the spectacle, clad in garment woven completely of silver, so that its texture was indeed wondrous, he entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. Straightway, his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, addressing him as a god. Taking his seat on the rostrum meant that he ascended to the throne in the amphitheater that his great-granddaddy had built, the amphitheater in Caesarea, where the games to Caesar were always held on an annual basis. 
So he's sitting on the throne, and they're proclaiming him as a God. They're overwhelmed by his appearance, and they say, he's like God. But Isaiah says very clearly that God is a jealous God, and he doesn't share his name with anyone. Isaiah 48, 2, verse 8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will not give to another. You cross the line with God, and God will deal with you. Everyone has the potential of refusing the glory of God that is shown in Jesus Christ. We have the potential of refusing God's glory by rejecting what he offered us. We see a man right here who's taking God's glory, and the response is swift. Verse 23 says this, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. I've read all the medical accounts. I'm not going to go into the detail. You can look it up yourself. It's absolutely horrific. How he died is just beyond description. Just think tapeworms, okay? That's enough for you. I had a bunch of teenage guys come up to me last night after the Saturday night service say, hey, can you give us the details? (laughs) Okay, think roundhead tapeworms, all right? That's, That's enough information for you. So we get more information, but not in a graphic, gross way. but rather some detail from Josephus, the first century historian, who saw this unfold. This is what he said. The king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. At once he felt a stab of pain in his heart. He was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once, and that was intense from the start. They hastened, therefore, to convey him to the palace, and word flashed about to everyone that he was on the very verge of death. Exhausted after five straight days by the pain in the abdomen, he departed this life in the 54th year of his life and the seventh of his reign, Josephus writes in the book of Antiquities, in 45 AD, Herod Agrippa I, best friends with Claudius Caesar, ruler of Rome, stepped into eternity, and he stands before the one true Supreme Court judge, the one who rules and reigns over this entire planet, and he will not be trifled with. We see a man who turned against God, who rebelled in such a way that he decided to go to battle with God. And historians said he lingered for five days in terrible pain amidst the glory and the splendor of his palace, clothed in his silver robes, yet he dies this horrible, violent death. And I want you to notice this. If you love theology or don't care for theology, pay special attention to this. He took his hand and he raised his hand against two of God's choice leaders of the church of Jesus Christ, Peter and John. Yet that did not kill him. Those two things would go on his record, but what killed him was when he defied the glory of God. The very thing that Romans 1 speaks of, if you've never read Romans 1 before, church, read Romans chapter 1 today. I encourage you to do that. It speaks specifically of people who go to battle against God and try and deny him his rightful glory. And God will not be trifled with. So you see Herod Agrippa because he tries to take God's glory and twist him for his own purposes. God judges him. Now verse 24 and verse 25 end the story. 
Verse 24 is what I want to focus on. Verse 25 is just some detail. Verse 24 says this, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was called also Mark. We know, according to what we've just studied, fighting the Lord God of the universe is absolutely foolish. It's eternally horrific, and here's why. God fights back. God fights back. If you think he just winks at sin, he does not. God fights back. The church had absolutely no political clout. They had no strings attached to people in high places. They're not tied into the entertainment industry. They don't even know people in the Olympic Games. But they know the King of Kings, and that's who they went to, to intercede for them, because God's throne is greater than the thrones of men. Do you believe that this morning? God's throne is greater than the thrones of men, and God's army can handle any armies that man can amass. Psalms 97 says the earth trembles at his presence, and the mountains melt like wax. Who is like our God? The word of the Lord never changes. Acts chapter 12, it looks like Herod's going to win. The church is in hiding, and Herod's about to kill their leaders. Acts chapter 12, Herod's dead. He's been dead for 2,000 years, church. But the word of our God goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Jesus said, you think earth is permanent? Earth is going to pass away. My words will not pass away. That means when he says he forgives you of your sins, he meant that. It never changes. That means when he says you're going to live with him eternally, he means that. It never changes. The word of our God endures forever. But when his face is set against the evil purposes of man, he means that also. He will deal with it, even though it might not feel to you like evil people are being dealt with. So verse 24, I wanted to focus on it because it said this, despite furious opposition, the word of the Lord continued. God continues to win because he cannot be defeated. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God reigns and rules? then you should take that confidence into the week ahead of you. Walk boldly and speak confidently of what you know to be the truth, but do it graciously. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we recognize that it, it's just amazing how you weave and work through history how you bring your purposes about. We can be so easily befuddled and feel shaken. But we get to come to a service like this and we're reminded we have no reason to be shaken because you rule and you reign and your purposes are always accomplished. So Father, here's what I ask for. I ask that you would take what we have studied today and for those who are willing, that you would take it and translate it into the lives of each individual here who's willingly surrendered to you, that they would, one, recognize that you rule and reign, and we can cast all our anxiety on you. But because of that truth, Father, we can walk confidently. We can speak boldly regardless of what men try to do to us. 
Thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ and the promise of our eternal life with him. Thank you for demonstrating victory by bringing him from the grave and sealing forever our eternal destiny. It's in his name that we praise you and thank you. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.